Good morning. All right. First thing, just so you're not alarmed if it happens during the service. When I get nervous, I pace, okay? And in the first service, and I've got a soccer injury. And during the first service, my knee popped out. And so if I'm in the middle of this and I fall, I'm not dead. I just, my knee does not turn as fast as the rest of my body. So that's a warning, and I know Donna and Bev will scoop me up if I fall down. So, good morning. As Ryan explained a few minutes ago, we have a very different order for our worship service this morning. We have communion and a lot of delightful music. And, um, and it's all focused around our topic today on the spiritual discipline of worship. In the New Testament, there's a section of scripture in the NIV that's been titled Instructions on Worship. Seems like a good place to start in your study of worship, right? <clears throat> and the first step in those instructions found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1, is to pray. Look it up. In the instructions on worship, Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So the first step in the instructions on public worship is to pray. So let's do that. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this morning. We offer this time to you in worship. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, in our look at the dis discipline of worship, I'd like to share with you pictures of some of my heroes and favorite people and what they look like when they worship, okay? First is George Washington, and I've always loved this painting. And you can't talk about worship without talking about Billy Graham, right? And here's a, here's a worship photo that I love of Mother Teresa. And this last one is my favorite worship picture and my favorite worshiper, too. This is me and what I look like when I worship. About 75% of the year, including Tuesday when this photo was taken, I commute, on my off I commute to my office in the Denver Tech Center on my bike about two hours each day. My commute is the primary time when I worship. I leave at about 4.40 a.m. when it's very cold, especially this time of year. I pray before I leave. I thank God when I arrive at, uh, at work safely. And in between, I worship. And particularly in the morning, when no one's on the road, it is my time when I'm away from the entire world and it's just me and God. And it is one of my favorite times of the entire day. And, and I love it. Um, about a year ago, something happened on my ride, however, <clears throat> that illustrates why worship is such a challenge for me and why it might be a challenge for some of you as well. It was about 5 a.m. on a gorgeous fall morning, and I was riding east down Bellevue Avenue, and I'd just passed Santa Fe going east, and, and I was at the top of the hill on Bellevue, right by Pirate's Cove Water Park. Can you picture it? And what you do as you reach the top of that hill is you ride as hard as you possibly can down that hill, down, dropping down into the valley by Bellevue Park to gain momentum to get up on the other side of the, 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 the valley there. Um, so that descent right there is the fastest I go on my entire ride. And, and it's a pretty scary part of my ride, too, because there's a cross street right at the bottom of that hill. And about once a week, once a week, about once a month, I see somebody run that stop sign as they get out onto Bellevue. So it's a real, really scary and dangerous part of my ride. 
So on this particular morning, I was worshiping. I was tucked in tight, and I was riding as hard as I could. And, and I just had come up on that dangerous cross street when all of a sudden, an SUV came up right behind my bike, entirely too close, and just cranked on its car horn at me, and then raced around me, and nearly clipped me with their rearview mirrors. they raced by. Now, I, had almost, I almost crashed, it scared me to death, and, and I was furious. And I told myself, I know that car is gonna hit a red light when it gets to the top of Bellevue at the intersection of Bellevue and Broadway. And I said, I'm gonna ride as hard and fast as I possibly can. Now, I've never been in a fight but I was ready to fight that morning the person who was driving that car, whoever it was. Hopefully it's not somebody who's in this service this morning. <laughs> As you can see here, I look pretty tough when I ride, am I right? Don't I look bad? Well, if it was possible to accelerate uphill that day, I did. I was livid, and I was riding as hard as I possibly could. And as I approached the intersection at Broadway and Bellevue, I was out of breath, the SUV wasn't there, and I thought I'd missed my chance. And, and many of you know, near the intersection of Broadway and Bellevue, there's a Del Taco restaurant right there with an all-night drive-thru. And as I rode by, guess who was in the drive-thru line at the restaurant? It was a lady, and she was leaning out of the car to, to pick up her order. And as mad as I was when that lady almost killed me, I was even more livid when I realized she'd almost killed me for a taco. Okay? <laughs> Now, I completely lost my temper. I threw my bike down on Bellevue. I stood in the middle of the street and I said, hey lady, you almost killed me and it's only 5 a.m. You must have really needed that taco. I was furious. But at that point, I realized I I'm not gonna get in a fight with a lady in an SUV over a taco. So I, I got back on my bike and I continued my ride and as I came to my senses, um, I remembered what I'd been doing before I was interrupted. Uh, I'd been worshiping in my favorite time every day uh, alone with God. In, in the blink of an eye, in, in just a second, I'd gone from total worship and, and my time with God to wanting to fight a lady in an SUV over a taco. Uh, does that ever happen to you? Not the taco part, but a, a phone call or an email or a deadline that distracts you from your prayer and your quiet time? Or, or someone cuts you off in traffic when, you, when you're singing praise music. Or, or you get in an argument with someone in your family on the way to church, uh, in, in your family, and, and you sit there and you just seethe in service instead of sing. I, I'm the king of all of those things. Well, why do we do that? Even more, do you ever get in such a habit with your worship or the process of going to church that you take for granted or even forget the real reason why we do all these things in these services in the first place? We have a saying at the place where I work that says that sometimes you don't need to be taught something new as much as you need to be reminded of something that you already know. And that's the focus of our service today and how this service is structured. To remember why we worship. To remember why we do the things, all the things that we do in these services. And to whom and for whom we do those things. Soren Kierkegaard once uh, brilliantly observed that we get it wrong when we sit in church and wait for the service to stir worshipful feelings in us, or we hope that the service is good, we get it wrong, Kierkegaard said, when we treat worship as if the people up on stage and the choir and the actors are, are, are the actors and the congregation is the audience. Get this. You are not, you're not the audience. You are not the customer. Okay? 
You are active participants in this service through the worship that you bring. The staff and choir, the people up on this stage are the prompters, but the true audience of worship is God. Webster's Dictionary in 1828 used this definition for the word worship. It said, worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Isn't that beautiful? When was the last time you performed and delivered worship to God like that? You showered him with extravagant love and extreme submission. Do you practice the discipline of worshiping like that? Billy Graham teaches the purpose of this Christian society called the church is first to glorify God by our worship. We do not go to church just to hear a sermon, Graham says. We go to church to worship God. The British theologian James Torrance said, Worship is not an optional extra, but is the very life and essence of the church. Man is never, never more truly man than when he worships God. And Jesus himself gives one of the most insightful and well-known directives on worship in the book of John, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And I'm going to read these verses, and as I do, I want you to do something for me, okay? I want you to read along, or I want you to listen carefully, and see if you can pick out the one most important, most convicting word that we're to remember when we worship. The one word in, in these verses, okay? You ready? As he was speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus says in John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what's the most convicting word for us to remember in these verses about worship? It's a little four-letter word. It's must, must. Jesus says in these verses that true worshipers, the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, must worship in the spirit and in truth. Both our head and our heart must be engaged and filled with his spirit. We, they must, Jesus said. We see the priority that God places on worship by, the, by examining the amount of, of uh, time he devotes to it in the scriptures. Listen to this. John MacArthur writes, to give you an idea of the priority that God puts on this topic of worship, consider that the scriptures devote 31 verses to describe the whole creation of the universe, and yet seven chapters, or 243 verses, are used for God to discuss all the standards, measurements, and furnishings that were to be part of the tabernacle, the place where worship took place. 31 verses on the creation of the universe. 243 verses on the specifications of worship in the tabernacle. Clearly, clearly, the quality and standards of our worship are important to God. Now, one of the greatest ways we worship together in the church, and it's my favorite because these people are so delightful and so wonderful, and Rebecca is so delightful and so wonderful, is through music and singing. When we worship, we must remember why we sing and to whom we're singing. Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. 
proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. And verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So as we sing a new song, do what the psalm says. Rejoice. Worship the Lord in his splendor. Declare his glory. Most of all, sing every word to him. Think about what you're singing. Most of all, to whom you're singing it and mean it. We just sang the following lyrics to God in worship. Hungry I come to you, for I know you satisfy. I am empty, but I know your love does not run dry. And so I wait for you. So I wait for you. The name of that song, again, is called Hungry. Over the last year, some events happened in the news that have come to a boiling point in the, in the news this week, and you've probably seen them in the newspaper, that have captured my heart and attention and that gave meaning to those words we just sang um, about hunger. Last November, a young boy, who probably looked somewhat like this, um, approached a soldier at an army checkpoint in Syria that separates Damascus from the eastern suburbs of that city. The boy was riding a bicycle and carrying one loaf of pita bread. As part of a military strategy called the Starvation Until Submission Campaign, the Syrian government has formed a blockade around this area, preventing all food and medicine from getting to the uh, one million Syrians, many of them Muslims, most of them Muslims, who were trapped there in a bloody and very complicated civil war. Beginning last summer, the Syrian government carried out a systematic bombing campaign in the area targeting, of all things, bakeries. The government bombed the bakeries there. They're trying to starve the people there into submission. Many residents in the blockaded area have been without bread now, their primary food staple, for up to 11 months in a dark, cold, and very bitter winter. A writer in the Financial Times just this week called the situation in Syria potentially the worst humanitarian crisis since Rwanda. The young boy that November day pleaded with the soldier, may I please take just this one loaf of bread into the blockade zone, please. As the soldier continued to dutifully refuse this request, the boy continued to beg, please, just one loaf of bread, please, they have nothing. Finally, the soldier could take no more. And he shouted at the boy, I'm telling you, not a single morsel is allowed in there. I don't make the rules. There are people bigger than you and me who make the rules, and they're watching us right now. So go back home. People watching that day said the soldier was, was visibly, visibly upset at what he'd had to do. They said he exhaled deeply and quietly, sadly, as the boy rode, rode sadly away. Nearby, a woman in the blockade zone shouted to a reporter who was there from one of the major news wires. And the, the lady yelled, don't the people in the West care about what's going on here? Don't they care? At the exact same time, just 53 miles away, amid this horrible famine and civil war in a town called Sednaya, a group of uh, Syrian priests and Christian theologians completed an eight-year effort to raise an 80-foot-tall statue of Jesus on a mountaintop that can be seen from Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. Here's a picture of that statue. 
The tallest statue of Jesus in the entire Middle East was raised up in Syria, of all places, amongst terrorists, Muslim, uh, warring Muslim factions, and unspeakable famine. Since the statue was raised, it's been the target of frequent attacks from Islamic fighters who want to destroy it. Al-Qaeda is going to blow it up, people tell the project director, every day. Why do you work for eight years, put yourself and your supporters in terrible danger, and do all this to raise up a statue that's going to get blown up? Why'd you do it? The director's answer to this question is always the same. Because Jesus would have done it. The name of this eight-year statue project in Syria is, I have come to save the world. That's the name of the statue. And one of the things I have to admit I'm torn about is, I don't care. I don't know if Jesus cares about that statue. I don't, I, I, does he might maybe wonder, worry more about the people and their food? And yet at the same time, I don't know what God put on this man's heart to raise up this statue. So it's been an emotional deal for me. All these things are going on in the world, by the way, right now, even as we gather here this morning to raise up Jesus ourselves and celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're physically hungry this morning, like I always am in church, or even more like the people you just heard about in Syria, participating in the Lord's Supper, it's not going to make a big difference. A little piece of bread and a drink. But if you're spiritually hungry in your life, in your worship, you feel like there's just got to be something more to them? This bread and wine means something completely, completely different. They literally mean everything. This is how Jesus calls us to remember him. In John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is where the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Look at those verses. God's will for you. No matter who you've done, no, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, is that you believe in him and you be raised to eternal life. That's God's will. That's what he wants. And so important, so strong is the Father's will that God sent his own son to carry that will out. And when you believe, Jesus says you will never go hungry. You will never be thirsty. That's what we lift up and remember in our worship. That's what we lift up and remember as we prepare to celebrate communion. Everything in the Father, given that you might have everything in Him. Remember, let's sing as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper in worship. So in our service this morning, we've celebrated the Lord's Supper in remem remembrance of Jesus. We've remembered that worship is honoring God with extravagant love and extreme submission. We've remembered that we're not the audience in church services. We're active participants. We bring the worship and the audience is God.
We've remembered why we pray. We've remembered why we sing. And the final thing we'll remember this morning is to remember why we give. Pastor Dave told me uh, two weeks ago that uh, about 50% of the tithes and, off- tithes and offerings that we collect now are done electronically, um, are, are, are done online. And, and you can find more about that uh, at the Welcome Center outside in the foyer. Uh, but if we collect tithes and offerings on- online uh, or directly, why do we make time to do that in part of this worship service? Why don't we just do that? Why do we take an offering in the service? For some, the physical act of placing their offering in the plate is a p- critical part of their worship. And for all of us, offering is another reminder each week that worship goes up. We give it to God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29, we're commanded, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And in his devotional, <clears throat> My Upmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers writes, Worship is giving God the best He has given you. Be careful what you do with the best you have, Chambers warns. Whenever you get a blessing from God, give it back to Him as a love gift. Take time to meditate before God and offer the blessing back to Him as a deliberate act of worship. As the ushers come forward in our worship, remember why we give. Carefully consider what you're doing with the best you have. The best you have. Take this time to offer back your first and your best to him as a deliberate act of worship. Before we bring our offering in worship, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, in the communion we just observed, we're reminded that you surrendered everything in love. Your will, your will in doing so was for, for us and our lives. Thank you. As we bring our tithes and offerings, we pray that we'd bring our first and our best in worship to you. We pray in the holy and lovely name of your son, in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, Richard Foster reminds us that, we on, that if we could only see the Father, we would be drawn into praise and thanksgiving more often. It is easy for us, Foster says, to think that God is so majestic and so highly exalted that our adoration makes no difference to him. It does. Foster reminds us that our God is not made of stone. His heart is the most sensitive and tender of all. Will you please Please remember as you leave this place and be drawn into worship and praise and thanksgiving with him this week and adore him and love him. Let's pray and we'll be excused. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen.